This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello and welcome. I'm Carmen Page, your host for this podcast. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr wrote, For there is not one single race of men, whether barbarians or Greeks, or whatever they may be called, nomads or vagrants or herdsmen living in tents, among whom prayers and giving of thanks are not offered through the name of the crucified Christ. Think about that. Wow. How could it be that in just over a century, an unlikely band of 120 men and women would multiply so rapidly that their message infiltrated and transformed their world. Perhaps they knew something we don't know today, or maybe we've just forgotten. Well, here to help us explore the success of the early church in reaching the world and what we might learn from their success is Dwight Edwards. Dwight is senior pastor of Water's Edge Community Church in Houston, Texas. He is a direct descendant of the renowned theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards. He has been a pastor for over 30 years and has ministered throughout the United States and around the world. Dwight studied at Dallas Theological Seminary and is a graduate of the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. He is a current best-selling author of books including Kindling for the Fire, Revolution Within, Releasing the Rivers Within, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be discussing Dwight's newest book, Game Changing Christianity. Dwight, welcome back to Saving Grace. Thanks so much, Carmen. Just great to be back. Well, you know, I'm so intrigued by the subtitle of this (laughs) book, how the early Christians so radically influenced their world and what we can learn from them. And when I consider the church today, sadly, I don't see us radically influencing our world. And I just wonder, is that your observation and perhaps what prompted you to look back at the history of the early church? Well, I'd say on the whole, you're right. I I, I do think that there's wonderful pockets throughout the world where uh, New Testament Christianity, so to speak, is thriving and so forth. But on the whole, um, I don't think that's the case. And, And candidly, um, I think in a lot of places, the church today would be unrecognizable mm. to those first century saints if they came back. And so um, that's what kind of motivated me to, you know, to go back and see, you know, what, where's the game? What are we missing? Yes. You know, and so forth. And um, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the answer's always been there and, and that basically the first 300 years of Christianity, there's a template that Paul laid down in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 2, 12 that he followed everywhere he went. The church continued to follow it. And for 300 years, it was magic. It was, ah. it was just explosive. Uh, Constantine comes in and pretty quickly the church becomes increasingly political. Uh, I like to say this, it moved from being an organism to an organization. Mm. Um, mm. So. Yes. So it's going to be uh, fun for us, but important for us to look back and see, look at that template and to see how we can now utilize it today. And recognizing it wasn't a perfect church by any means. I mean, you'd read the New Testament, it's pockmarked with Mm. legalism and false doctrine and license and so forth. But there were some basics that they did Mm -hmm. extraordinarily, relentlessly well. Mm. And it's those basics that I think win the day. Yes, yes. Well, just to kind of hit home with our audience, uh, the the numerical growth of Christians in that 300 years. Talk a 
little bit about that growth. I mean, in the increments, uh, you know, just of how how quickly uh, Christianity spread and how it grew substantially right. every 50 years right. uh, that made such an impact in this world. Well, the, the numbers are stunning. Um, this comes from a great work by a man named Rodney Stark. Rodney's a Princeton uh, sociologist, and he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he demonstrates there that if you start in the year 100 AD, there's approximately 0.0126 percent mm. of the Roman Empire called themselves Christ followers. So let me say that again. 0.0126. Let me fast forward uh, just 100 years, and by the year 200 AD, we're now at 0.36, which is a huge jump, but still it's only 0.36% of the world of that day. Uh, fast forward uh, 50 years, and now we're at 1.9%. Fast forward another 50 years, and at the year 300 AD, we're at 10.5%, mm -hmm. one out of 10. And when we move to the year 350 AD, 56% of the Roman Empire called themselves Christ followers. So in literally, um, from the year uh, 100 AD to 350 AD, we move from 0.0126% mm -hmm. to 56%. Mm -hmm. That's just staggering. Well, it's just yeah, staggering. It's just so the evidence of the working <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Because oh, when absolutely. you think about no technology. I mean, you know, they didn't have internet. They didn't have the marketing that we have today. They didn't have the programs and the big mega churches or any of those things. This small band of men and women just just sharing, absolutely just living living their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, without like the printing press, without internet, without TV, without Christian concerts, without all these different things. And in fact, one of the things that I say in here is that the stunning historical reality is this. Christianity was at its best when it had no clergy and it had no church buildings. Whoa. Whoa. But it's <laughs> yes. the truth. I mean, there's no way to get around that. Right, right. And so it's not a matter of saying there's something you know bad or wrong with, with clergy or church not. buildings. Of course not. But we're missing something mm -hmm. then, if that's mm -hmm. uh, if we don't really take into account what it was that enabled those Christians, without those two commodities, mm -hmm. to have such impact. Uh, as, you, as you said in your opening statements, uh, the plan's been there. Right. Uh, you know, it's not hidden from us. But how have we missed it? How, how do churches today miss that plan? Well, and I would say, you know, throughout history, God continues his work. He always does it through a remnant. It's always been a minority that God has, has worked through. And so, you know, generation after generation, groups somewhat um, rediscover it. So one of the things I do in this book is I talk about the group that I think, other than the first century, uh, first three centuries, approximated New Testament Christianity was a group called the Moravians mm. that listened, yes. lasted for about 150 years. But the template they followed was virtually identical to what you found for the early Christians. And as I said, for some reason, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 2, 12 does not get the press that it should. Because it's it's either Paul's first or second letter, uh, depending on how you date Galatians, which really doesn't matter. But it's the only letter where he says very specifically, this is how we did ministry. This is what we were looking for as metrics of success as we did ministry. And this is how we want you, Thessalonians, to continue doing ministry, which is exactly what they did. Fire begets yes. fire. Yes, yes. And as I said, it's been there all along. Uh, yeah. Occasionally it's like stumbled over, but uh, it's such a gem 
of, of how to do ministry. Yeah, I, yes. Frankly, I was so excited to write this book because it's like, where has this been? What, it, it's, <laughs> it's always been, been in front of us. Right, it's always right. been in front of us. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And we are going to get into this and dig into this timeless plan. But, you know, one of the things, uh, it, it, you call it returning to the basics. Right. Returning the basics. Why is our tendency, though, to sort of yawn when we hear about returning to the basics as though it's not exciting, as though it's, it's oh, you know, been there, done that? Uh, why is it a detriment to the church not to see the basics as, as the exciting thing that they can use to go forward and grow the church for Christ? Such a great point. You know, um, I think part of it is uh, that we forget that even though something is basic, even though something is common, even though something we've heard hundreds of times is no longer familiar to us, does not mean it is not extraordinarily powerful. Mm, good and point. so, and, and we live in a generation that wants the magic bullet, you know, that wants a silver bullet rather, that, that what's the, what's the, how do I fast forward success at warp speed, uh, kind of a la um, American Idol. Mm-hmm. You go back and you see that what happened is, it, is that the, the early believers, they just did the basics. I say this, all great athletes, you'll discover, what makes them the greatest athletes, the very best athletes, is not the fancy kind of plays that, you know, people tend to think of. It's that they just do the basics extraordinarily, relentlessly, tirelessly well. And that's what wins the day. And so that's that's what we see, is that there is incredible power. But because, you know, we've grown up hearing it, there's a tendency to internally yawn and not step back and say, wait a minute, maybe there's more power to this than I realized, than I'm giving it credit for. Yes, and this power is going to be so important because as you say, we are called to enter a battlefield. You you quote uh, missionary Jim Elliott who wrote, we are spiritual pacifists, (laughs) non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. And he goes on to say, oh, that God would make us dangerous. Dwight, what does he mean by making us dangerous? Well, that's the the first chapter of the book. It's called Dangerous Christianity. And I say, first of all, Christianity has been dangerous in all the wrong ways. And so Mm. we can't blink that away. You know, Inquisition, the Crusades, Salem witch trials, uh, bombing abortion clinics, ah, you know, yes, things like that. Today. Yeah, yes. e- even today, you know, and, and, and it's left a monstrous black eye mm. on, on the face of Christianity. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's no escaping the, the fact and the reality that Christ's call to us as believers, as the, the ecclesia of the church, is that we'd be dangerous. And so the first place I take this is Matthew 16. Okay. The first time that Christ uses the word church it's then juxtaposed to a militant picture. So he says, uh, I will build my, my church, Peter, upon this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mm. And so one of the things I say is that it's, it's normative for Christians to be gate crashers. It's normative for Christians to be going right into the jaws of hell and snatching wow. men from darkness uh, into light. Um, mm-hmm. And you see that running throughout the entirety of the, the New yes. Testament, you know, yes. the, the idea that we're here to be great worshipers, we're here to be great lovers, yes. but we're also here to be extraordinarily dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Mm. 
That is such an important point. And when I was reading your book, I was like, wow, <laughs> I think I've missed that. Yeah. I had missed that. And, you know, like you say, as believers, we want to be uh, good ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Right. And so we associate that, obviously, with loving him first, loving others as we love ourselves, ministering to people in this fallen world, all which is good. And all of those are things that we are to do. Uh, but you point out, even from Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, uh, that we can't ignore the sphere of hell yeah. itself. And, and, and I'm like, wow, we have done that. We have done that. It's like, well, that's over there. We'll let God and his angels take care of, of hell. Uh, I'm just going to love my neighbor and love God. Uh, so, so explain this, this daily offensive that we as Christians should be more conscious of as we live this daily life. Well, well to me, Ephesians is incredibly fascinating on this very issue. Mm -hmm. It's uh, one of the two what we call non-corrective epistles of the New Testament. In other words, uh, every epistle is written to correct a problem except for Romans and Ephesians. And Ephesians, there's three great regions that Paul focuses on. Chapters 1 through 3, the region is the heavenlies. Mm. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, 1-3. Uh, and then the rest of those uh, chapter, the rest of chapters 1 through 3, is devoted to basically worship and living life uh, in the heavenlies. Then he turns in 4-1, and all the way through 6-9, the next region is the earth. And, and basically our calling is to walk worthy. And you find uh, several different walk passages, but basically says, now, we also have a responsibility on this earth, and that is to live yes. surprisingly, to walk worthily, yes. and so forth. And you would think that's all God's asking for. So right, what, what right. more could he ask? Uh -huh. you know? But what you find is that nobody graduates from the book of Ephesians. Mm -hmm. Nobody walks out of the book of Ephesians without being reeled in by Paul and saying, now, wait a minute, there's another region that you need to take very seriously because the job's not yet done, and that's hell itself. And so Ephesians 6:10 through uh, to 20 is basically telling us, okay, you and I are now called to do hand-to-hand -hand combat mm. with the kingdom of darkness, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, so forth and so on. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God uh, that you may stand, because if you don't take the whole armor, you mm. do not have a chance. So yeah. I, I just think that's something that is so, so crucial mm. for us to, to keep in mind. Yes, yes. Oh, I do too. I think it's vitally important because you have to know who your enemy is. That's right. You have to know what their plan of attack is. And we can't just sit idly by right. and assume they're going to pass us by. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. 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 Well, you, you have shared what you believe is Paul's template, uh, his blueprint for vital, life-transforming, Christ-spotlighting ministry uh, found in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, mm -hmm. uh, talk, talk a little bit about what we can learn from that template and where that's found. Well, I'd say just go back and read First uh, Thessalonians one one through through two twelve, and and basically he describes in chapter one when we came to you, this is what we brought. This is what we did. So a key passage there is he says, when we came to you, uh, our gospel did not come to you in word alone, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much full conviction, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And basically saying, we brought three things. Okay. And, and this, I think, is so crucial. Number one, we brought the word of God. He mm. says, we did not come in word alone, but we did come in word. So in chapter two, he's going to go on and say, that we thank God that when you received the word which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of man, but as it is in 
truth, <coughs> the Word of God. So the first thing they brought was the naked, unedited, undiluted Word of God. They yes. talked about the Word, around the Word. They were fanatics in getting people face-to-face -face with the actual Word of God that's living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Yes. So one is they brought, the, uh, they brought the Word of God. Secondly, I like to say they brought the fire of God, because then he goes mm -hmm. on and says, it did not come in Word alone, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much full conviction, or maybe we just use the simple word godly passion. Yes, yes. <clears throat> and I th we, we way underestimate how important passion is. Mm -hmm. Passion heightens credibility. Uh, I've often argued Nazi Germany could not have occurred apart from passion. Interesting. If, if Hitler and the rest had given their speeches like they were math lectures, nobody would have followed them. Now, it was a demonic passion. Yes. It, was a, it, was, it was an awful passion. On the other hand, if you look at, at ministries, uh, George Whitfield would be a great example, where he could hardly preach without tears streaming down his, his eyes and so forth. But what we see here is he said, you know, as we came, we knew that this is life and death kind of stuff. Yes. You know, we're, we're not peddling cell phones here. Right, right, right. We, we are, we're dealing with yes. people's eternity. So there's the, I say, the fire of God. So the Word of God, the fire of God. And then the final thing is, he said, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And here, I like to just say the glory of God, or put another way, we lived surprising lives. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge, huge issue for the first 300 years of, of Christendom. And, and perhaps at another time we can get more into it. They led by surprise. They lived lives that caught the unbelievers off guard. They were the wow factor of God mm. for the first 300 years. Yes. And, and they did things. They, they blessed the culture of the day, no strings attached. In other words, um, for one quick example is uh, female infanticide was very, very common in that mm -hmm. day. And um, families would take a newborn infant uh, uh, female and just throw her out on the street, let her die. Well. The Christians were the only people. They came along and they picked up those babies and they took them home and raised them as their own. Wow. <laughs> and pretty soon word got out, wow, these Christians are, are different. So I, I think that's really what won the day, the first 300 mm -hmm. years. Persecution was significant in that uh, they did die in ways that, that others didn't. People saw something there. But on the whole, it was that they blessed their culture, no strings attached. And what I mean by that is they didn't say, if you become a Christ follower, will help you with your hospitality or something. Right, they right. just said, come. Just, yeah, just come. come. We want to love on we're, you. Today. We're going to love on you. Exactly. And it finally became irresistible. Wow. Uh, so I think it, for the modern church, I would say those three things, mm -hmm. you know, if we just mm -hmm. go back to those, it, yes. it, would, it would put us so much further ahead than we are right Wouldn't now. it? Wouldn't it? And, you know, like, you know, God's word, you know, it, it doesn't return void. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. we don't have to add to it. So oftentimes no. we think, well, if I share a scripture, I also have to share my commentary right. on it. Absolutely. <laughs> but it doesn't need that. That, you know, there's, there's, I always put it this way. Once you release the... Word of God, you've just thrown out a hand grenade. Mm -hmm. There's no telling where it's going to blow up yes. and what damage it's going to do to the kingdom of darkness. But I do think we live in an age in which, frankly, I think, um, I would say many pastors, many Christian leaders, I've lost, lost confidence in the extraordinary power of the Word of God. And so we're trying to buttress our messages with 
all kinds of things but the Word of God. And, and I'm all for illustrations and film, sure, things that sure. make it relevant right. and so forth. But the greater percentage of every message, in my estimation, ought to simply be the Word of God. Just the Word of God. The Word of God. <laughs> it yeah. for itself. And, and, and there's no question. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that was really powerful is that in those first three centuries, you know, you didn't have a clergy laity distinction. That, that you had leaders, but you had no professionals. Everybody was all in. And it was normative that everybody was deep in the Scripture, and they could pass it along, just as Paul told Timothy, and that's where the power came from, which is the Word of God. Well, and that's where the passion comes from, Absolutely. right? Because when you when you soak yourself in yeah. God's Word, you can't help but that's get excited exactly right. about exactly who right. He is and, and what He's accomplishing in this world. Absolutely. So that's, that's uh, beautiful. And then, and then your lives are supernatural. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so it all works together, doesn't it? Uh, you mentioned that there are three success stratagems that were used, and we're going to dig into those a little more even next week. But would you comment on, on the importance of, for example, taking the initiative? Yeah, yeah. Well, you go back to Acts 17, and that's where we have the description of what happened in Thessalonica. So we, we want to add Acts 17 into 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 and 2. Okay. And the first thing that we find is that it just simply says that uh, that they went through, uh, I think it was Amphipolis and so forth, and came to Thessalonica. And it's just a very simple thought. It's this. They didn't wait to be invited. <laughs> Paul never went anywhere that he was invited. Uh. He just went. Uh, and so when, when they went to Thessalonica, it, that was a great place to live, by the way. That was very much like Houston. It was uh, a pretty affluent. Mm -hmm. um, Rome had pretty well set them free. Uh, great place to raise a family. You know, good standard of living. Yeah. Only one problem. There's not one single Christ follower mm. in Thessalonica when Paul and Silas and Timothy walk in. When they walk out, different story altogether. Yes. But the first thing is, uh, i just put it this way, dangerous Christians do not wait to be invited. So, for instance, when Jim Rayburn had a tremendous heart for uh, young life, for excuse me, for uh, high school students, he went into the schools uninvited, hence young life. Mm. When uh, Bill Bright wanted to reach the college students, yes. he didn't pull them out and say, "Come to this church." Right. He went in uninvited. Mm. And hence, we have um, a Campus Crusade. Yes. My dear friend, uh, Dr. Walt Baker. While he's teaching at Dallas Seminary, he wanted to make a difference uh, in more than just the classroom. So he went to the, the local Starbucks uninvited, and he just hung out at that Starbucks. Yes, yes. And he blessed so many. And it was about a year before they found out he was a professor. But meanwhile, <laughs> he wreaked all kinds of damage that came in darkness. So uh, I just I put it this way. Yes. As a pastor, I put yes. it this way. We have all the Bible studies safely secluded in the four walls of a church that we need. Yes. And there's a place for that. Yes, but but yes. we're covered. We're covered. <laughs> We've got that taken We've got care, taken care of. of. What we need, I like uh, to call it, what we need is battlefield Bible studies. Yes. We need Bible studies and mentoring opportunities that are out where the people are. Absolutely. You know, and so Absolutely. forth. So uh, that, that, that's what we mean by taking initiative. I have to share quickly, my husband and I lived in College Station, Texas, for like three years. And during that season, God gave us a Starbucks ministry. Awesome. And we would go daily. We would take the books, whatever books we were reading. Sometimes they were interesting 
interesting titles, right? The workers, the the people who were coming in to buy coffee, and usually students, yeah. uh, would would ask us about what we were reading, and we would we would get to know them, ask them their That's name, it. and That's it. ended up we we started inviting these kids to our house on Friday night. Bring your guitars and your poetry and your artwork, and let's just share and 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 it opened up a door of ministry, which to this day we talk about our Starbucks ministry. So I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, these are kids that, a lot of them, you know, tattooed and, and pierced, and but we love them. Yeah. We love them. And they knew we loved them. Uh, when they came, I always had things for them to eat, yeah. and, and we just loved on them. And we saw some lives transformed, Why? Absolutely. And that's normative Christianity. You know, the sad thing is that that, that was, that was the, 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 you know, the normative thing in that day. One of the things that they used to do is... Um, you know, go to the wine stalls, the marketplace, and just hang out. Mm-hmm. And then just like you did, slowly they would invite them back to their house. Yeah. And, and probably most of the people that in that time period trusted Christ in somebody's house. Yes. You know, and so yeah. forth. So they I trusted. Just, they they trusted, trusted. Exactly. So, you know, I don't think the Christian life gets exciting until we risk. Oh, you I know, agree. Th- 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 until there's a risk factor involved. Mm-hmm. You know, but when that happens, it's like, man, why would you settle for less? Oh, it's exciting. Yeah. Exciting. But we can't overlook look the second stratagem, which is maximizing our natural sphere of influence, wow. right? And probably the most difficult, I would think. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, this is the thing that really hit me um, going through and, and looking at it. Uh, I remember years ago, Oswald Sanders making a statement, God never wastes our background. Mm. And that's always stuck with me. It's like, you know, that's probably true. We, yeah. we all have a unique bridge that goes over into the um, unbelieving community. But there's a couple of passages that really pushed me over the edge. One was that Paul, wherever he went, started with a synagogue. But he was the apostle of the Gentiles. Yes, no question yes, about it. Yes. You know, but everywhere he went, he started with the synagogue. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that. But one is that was his natural sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Nobody had a greater pedigree uh, than <laughs> right. Paul in terms of his Phariseeism and so forth. So he started with those people, and I like to think of it this way, whom God had sovereignly entrusted to him. Mm. I think we all have a sphere of influence that is not accidental. And we've yeah. got to see it that way. Yeah. The workplace, the neighborhood. We do a lot of ministry in the country clubs, the tennis clubs, the golf mm-hmm. clubs. That is fertile, fertile soil yeah. uh, for men and women to go in just to your own natural sphere of influence. The people you play tennis with, the people you play golf with, right. you know, th- they need to hear the gospel out there, you know, in terms of relationships. So, uh, and so what you found in the, in the um, uh, early church basically was tax collector went to tax collector. Mm. Um, fishermen went to fishermen. You know, and we, we find the same, th- same thing today. It, normally, it takes a CEO to influence another CEO. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it takes a doctor to influence another doctor. But I, I just like the term maximize our natural sphere of influence. I um, love it. I love it. Yes. And, and, and if we can just look at who's around us, yeah. why God placed us where he did, when he did. Well, and let me just say this in this regard. Way too many um, Christians today are waiting for ministry to be handed over to them. Mm-hmm. And they're bemoaning the fact that, you know, the church isn't using me. There's no place for service. Uh, I think that in the first century, they would scratch their heads and say, what are you talking really? about? <laughs> are you serious? There's a green light for ministry that cannot blink any harder and brighter than it does. Mm-hmm. And it's natural sphere of influence. Acts 1.8. What's your Jerusalem? Once mm-hmm. you've covered your Jerusalem, then we go out to, to Samaria. So I just think that if, if, if believers would start thinking in those terms, yes. I, I think we'd have so much more impact. Uh. 
Well, in closing, let's talk about that third strategy, uh, which is threefold, maximizing the Word of God, spotlighting the Son of God, and humbly communicating the message of God. Yeah, and that comes from the way that Paul went in. And, and if you look at the passage uh, there in Acts 17, it says that he went in among them. He didn't, he didn't speak down to them. He went among them mm-hmm. and reasoned from the Scriptures— uh, concerning the person of Christ. And so, you know, maybe we can talk about this uh, at, at another time in greater detail. Yes. But basically, he goes in and in a very humble, and I just love the phrase, one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. Oh, I love that. And yes. that's exactly what Paul did. He mm-hmm. said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming not as somebody over you. I'm coming as a fellow beggar, and mm-hmm. but I'm not anymore because God graced me with this bread. You should try it. Yeah. It's like the Samaritan woman. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So it's it's that spirit of, of humility. Humility is beautiful. It's so so important, um, and the message basically is spotlighting the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting. They didn't they didn't spend their their time talking badly about Rome and all the problems Rome had, right, which were, right. were, were 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 monumental and mm. so forth. But which we would do today, and which we did. And so yes. I like to, I like to say, put it this way: yeah. is what we need is believers who can speak with greater passion about what's right with Christ and what's wrong with the world. Oh yes, I agree totally. And, and I think that's where we're, we have plenty of people who talk about what's wrong with the world because there's plenty wrong with the world, <laughs> and there always has been. Yes. But what we need is men and women who cannot talk about the person of Christ without tears coming into their oh, eyes. Oh yes, yes. Without a new vibrancy in their voice. Yes. Without just simply saying, "You need to meet my best friend." Yes, yes. You need to meet him. Oh, amen. Amen. Wow. Well, we focus today on our call as Christians to the battlefield. And your book, Game Changing Christianity, really provides tremendous support for success in the battlefield. And I encourage our, our audience to, to get your book. We look forward to having you up back next yeah, week. We're going to dig in a little Great. deeper. All right? Thanks so much, All Carmen. right. Thank you, Dwight. Well, our guest today has been Dwight Edwards. Plan to join us again next week as we continue our discussion of game-changing Christianity. Our prayer is that you will seek to learn more through this podcast and through Grace School of Theology. We've set up a couple of ways for you to communicate with us. You can email your questions or your comments to savinggrace at gsot.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at SavingGraceCast. The questions and comments we receive are addressed in future programs. Be sure to tell others about our podcast. It's a great way to introduce family and friends to God's amazing grace. Thanks for tuning in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash saving grace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership. 